Uh, I know that some in our audience know the finer points of hockey. The Chris Johnston Show. We are your friends. The biggest stories, bringing you inside the game. What did you hear? The Chris Johnston Show. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. What is going on? Here's Chris with your host, Julian McKenzie. Part of the game. Siege, uh... You can tell me if the game is already passed or not, but uh, do you, are you planning at all on on visiting Mullet Arena if the Leafs play there or for any other reason this year at all? Well, I'd like to see it. You know, why? I've been to every arena that has opened or been open during my time as a reporter, so I'd, I would like to go there at some point. And, and there's got to be some curiosity factor there. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get into some more of the nitty-gritty of, of – where it's at to start, where it's going, and, and what the Coyotes' future looks like. But, you know, I'd like to go to a college atmosphere for an NHL game, see a, a rink that I think has 13 seats, like 13 rows rather, like no upper bowl, no middle bowl. Yeah, I'd like to get there and see it. Someone is going to make a joke about the fact that that arena has 13 seats. But uh, the Arizona, that's life for the Arizona Coyotes. They play in a venue that is about 5k it's a college arena on the grounds of the arizona state university and their visitor facilities are just an open room with curtains i look i mean they say it's supposed to make more money it's supposed to be this crazy atmosphere but as a person for watching from a distance i'm just a little bewildered about all of this to be honest i i, I look I, I i don't know if i'm gonna visit the arena myself but like at least just looking at it i'm like what's going on that's how i feel well i'm guessing you're someone who was was never at their previous arena the gila river arena it was called most recently and you know i covered a bunch of games there over the years and i have to say part of how you view this has to be through the scope of what that was and and that was facility wise there was no problems with that building. It looked it looked and felt like an NHL arena in every way when you walked around it. But it was it was I was never there when there was much of a crowd. Um, you know, I was even there for a few. I was there, for example, the first night that Austin Matthews played in Arizona, you know, a local boy who had, um, you know, created some buzz around the league and, and it still didn't have, a you know, some crazy atmosphere. And so, you know, that was not a profitable situation for the Coyotes, for the players who share. 50 50 in revenues either. And so I think part of the reason that we get to this solution being acceptable, at least on some level, is that what they had really was not working at all. And they had no other options. You know, one of the things they considered was actually putting a, a, a rink in Chase Field where the Arizona Diamondbacks play. That was like among the possible considerations prior to getting to Mullet Arena, uh, was playing an entire year in a baseball stadium. And so you have to frame it in the right way. Like what they were choosing between none of those, there was no perfect other option out there. Um, you know, as for the the visiting dressing room, it's still a, a couple, like that video shot a couple days before the game. I want to see the final version. And the other part is, yeah, there's a lot of crappy visiting dressing rooms around the league, quite frankly. I mean, obviously teams put a lot of resources and, and space into having their home dressing rooms be nice, but it's not like the visiting rooms around the league are all palaces. So, you know, I'm not defending the setup, but I, I do think some context, like if you only see that video on Twitter and, and you're going to react to it, like you have to remember where we're coming from here. And, you know, I'm actually more so Friday night against the jets, right? That's the first game there. I mean, 
I know a bunch of national reporters are flying down there. Everyone's going to sort of cover that for one day, you know, like, what is this like and how does it feel? And I'm sure some of my esteemed colleagues will write, oh, it was even better than we thought. You know, it was fun. I'm curious where we're at a couple of years down the road, right? I mean, like, it's it's a bit of a novelty curiosity at this point, but, you know, this is meant to be a semi-long-term solution while the Coyotes try to get their own rink built in Tempe. And, you know, I, I'm wondering, it's not just where this starts. It's like, how does it age? You know, how does, how does this wear on the Coyotes or is it something they can make comfortable enough? You know, those are questions we don't have an answer to yet. Yeah, this is a, a place they'll be playing in through 2025, correct? Yeah, and maybe longer, right? I mean, it, let's say, I know that there's a couple of council meetings in November, you know, where, you know, the Coyotes are hoping that their arena project, their, their permanent arena project moves forward. You know, it takes a long time from getting approvals to, you know, first shovel on the ground to actually opening an arena. You know, we've we've seen even some recent examples, right? The Islanders played all those games on the road last year because their new building wasn't ready to start the season. Uh, the Rangers had to play a bunch on the road when they were renovating MSG. Like, it, it's hard. Even Seattle, uh, if, I, if I recall correctly, didn't have Climate Pledge Arena open right when the season started because these things tend to take a little longer than even you plan. And so. 2025 is the optimistic view. I think reasonably it could be another year beyond that. And that's assuming the Coyotes get the approvals they need at all. I mean, then, I mean, I, I don't know where they turn next. It feels, you know, someone covering the league as long as I have Julian, like it feels like we've been talking about what does, what does the Coyotes do f- for like 15 years? Cause I think we pretty much have, you know, if you go back to when they were in bankruptcy and Jim Balsilli tried to buy them out of bankruptcy, you know, through the courts and move them unilaterally to Hamilton without league approval. I believe that was what, 2007, 2008, somewhere there. So we were, we were still using blackberries back then. We were, I I actually, this is a true story. So I was working for the Canadian press at the time and I I covered a lot of those court hearings. Uh, So I was flying into Phoenix and doing that. And I, I believe I had a blackberry and that was my first viral tweet. Uh, I, you know, because I started to tweet a little bit from the courtroom and obviously anyone who was a hockey fan who was interested at the time, it wasn't like every reporter that was there was tweeting because it was sort of a more new uh, technology. So I guess that must have been a little later, maybe 2009 when that was happening. But anyway, um, I remember it was the first time I was getting notifications when every follower joined and like my inbox went like... <laughs> I, had like, I got like a hundred followers from one tweet from the Coyotes court case. Cause again, it was an immediacy that fans at that time couldn't have. It wasn't that I broke some crazy story or, you know, I was really just doing what, what we now everybody does everywhere uh, that covers news. But um, anyway, that's a, that's a complete aside, but this is why Great story, I, I, by the way. Right. But it, it's a complete aside, but, but the point is it's been so long that we've been pondering the future of this franchise and what's going to save it that, it, it comes to feel a bit exhausting. Maybe that's why there isn't more outrage too, quite honestly, that they're playing in this arena. Like I know there's a fair bit of snark, but I just think that, I mean, the saga of this franchise, you, you could fit it in, in several books. I don't know who would want to read them, but there's, there's been so many twists and turns and ownership situations and, you know, a lot of well-meaning people trying to get it off the ground, frankly, like that's the other thing is I know people that work in the organization. Like I, I don't take any pleasure in kicking them. Like it would be great. Uh, because people have invested time and energy into to making it work. It'd be great if it worked out. Um, this feels like a Hail Mary, though, right now. I mean, if I suppose if they catch the college vibe and they get the approval and they start building the new rink, it'll probably be fine. But if one of those things doesn't happen, um, it's a little fraught with peril. 
Yeah, that's actually a really good way of putting it. I just want to see if it'll actually make money. It just seems as if like people are so into it and people are buying tickets, at least just more hearsay than anything. I'm, I'm genuinely curious about how that will hold up and also how the players genuinely feel about it. And I guess we'll know about it through those stories that'll be written. But I really would love to know how Clayton Keller and whoever they end up picking in the NHL entry draft next summer uh, f- feel about playing in an arena like Mullet. That's that's what I'm looking at. Right. And as a visiting player, like it might not be so bad for one off games here and there. Right. I mean, it's 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 like a, you get to stay at a different part. You know, if you haven't been to the greater Phoenix area, it's a huge, expansive area. You know, Glendale, their former home was a long, long way from the airport, a long way from Scottsdale where you can find nice restaurants and nightlife. So this this will allow them to stay somewhere new. You know, maybe the college vibe, especially for those that played in college, might be fun for a game. Like, I think you can enjoy it. But you do wonder about the Coyotes themselves, like how how that will come to feel you know, after 10 games, after 50 games, after potentially 100 games, if you if they spend four years there and the guys on the team the whole time, you know, that that's a tough look. And then, you know, let's imagine Connor Bedard or, you know, ends up, you know, playing for the Coyotes, like, you know, the next maybe generational star in the league. Like it, it's not a perfect situation. They don't pretend it is, to be fair. It's just, this is, this is the last attempt, I would think, to try to make it work in, in Arizona in terms of, you know, they... It's one thing to start in this arena and we can get really into that. But the other part is they have to actually move forward with their own arena project. Or I just, I don't think this can last too long. Exactly. Um, since we, this is the opener. I, mean, I don't think we can go too long or else we're going to keep David Bastel waiting uh, from sports interaction. Uh, but uh, I like today's episode. I mean, I like all of our episodes. Uh, after sports interaction, we're going to discuss uh, some of the more interesting storylines that have taken place uh, to this point in the year, and we'll also get to stick taps. But uh, with considering with how this Arizona arena situation is going, this is going to be one of those topics we keep going back to every so often. So this is not the last you've heard us discuss uh, the Arizona Coyotes. But uh, in the meantime, well, I oh, got to add you... one thing though. There's one point because yeah, so, someone ahead. you know I get that most of our listeners out there probably aren't following the Coyote schedule. So they started with six games on the road. They have this little four game homestand that starts Friday against the Jets. Then they're on the road for 14 more games uh, while they finish up the, the dressing room facilities and, and make those a lot nicer than what you've seen bounce around your Twitter feed. So that's an insane start to the season. Like I, That's ridiculous. I mean, the roster is one thing that, that they have there, but just having that kind of schedule, like, like that is so hard on any team. We, we could take the best team in the league and give them that schedule, and, and I don't think you're coming through with a great record. So this is going to be a really difficult year for the Coyotes. Like I, I actually make no fun of that. Like I, can you imagine a 14 game road trip? You know, some, you know, a lot of these guys are fathers or have partners or whatever. Like that's, that's crazy. Um, so they're, they're dealing with a lot more than just playing in a really small arena this season at home. Tell you what, if you're a team like Arizona trying to, you know, draft, get a high draft pick in next summer's draft, you find the silver linings in a 14 game road trip. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, that that's at the ownership and management level, though. At the player level, exactly. Like, a lot of those guys know they're not going to be there when the team is good down the road at some point. You know, like when all those draft picks are ready to take their jobs. You know, they're going to be somewhere else. So th- this is, I'm just saying, like have pour one out or have like a little bit of empathy for some of the players on the Coyotes because I, I think this this will be as challenging a year as 
a lot of them will ever face. And I'm saying that having, you know, realized some of them have just come through playing in a bubble and in the pandemic and playing in front of no fans and all that stuff. Like this might even be harder than that. Man, if the Arizona Coyotes end up being really good, that's a really good story to do. Like say if Clayton Keller hangs around for all of this, like that's a guy you talk to because that's a guy who will have endured playing in a bubble, having a serious injury, a serious injury to end a season, playing in a 5,000 seat arena, <laughs> having all these different tanking measures to get all these top draft picks. Like if the Arizona Coyotes end up being good at the end of this, Clayton Keller is the person I want to talk to. That's you're assuming he, he stays there. I'm not, and I'm not, I don't, that's, that's true. That's, if he stays there, if that's he not a there. knowledge base. That's, I'm not reporting anything, but I'm just saying like, no. it's there. There are a few years away from being a few years away. So, you know, he's going to have some scars already. And, and it's still a little while before we're talking about this team being on the rise. All right. Let's bring on David Bastel from sports interaction, uh, 19 and over. If you're playing on sports interaction, we ask that you play responsibly. There'll be, there'll be a link to responsible gaming strategies in the description of the show. It is time for you can bet that you can read uh, CJ's latest on uh, NorthStarBets.ca, the 10 best stories and surprises in the National Hockey League so far. Uh, let's go through them on our podcast, Siege. Thank you. And, and look, the impetus for even doing this exercise, I have to say, is that I was thinking to myself, we're two weeks into the season and we're all like, the version of ambulance chasers in the sports media world, right? Like it's all just like, this is to go into hell in Vancouver and Minnesota. You know, I saw Mike Russo had a good piece with Bill Guerin this week, just talking about like how they got to get going. I, you know, I've seen it called a crisis on long Island. You know, we, we got into the whole Sheldon Keefe and you know, everything going on on the Leafs. It just feels like, you know, let's be real. Some of that outrage or whatever will be, it will be legitimate, but we're not going to know for a month, like truly like a team like the Leafs, for example, or even Minnesota, like but a month from now, we might laugh that we ever were worried about a couple losses in the first two weeks of the season. So I was like, what are we missing? And, and I do think sometimes by focusing on all the calamity or concern that there, that some good stories get missed too. So that, that was just a, as a frame of reference, how I got to like, like what, okay, really let's look deeper here. And, and, what are the good stories we're missing? I, th I think there's a lot, and there's certainly a lot more than the 10 I contemplated, but um, you know, these are just what I came up with. So for everyone in the comments, you are not going to find Vancouver, Minnesota, the Islanders, and the Leafs' misery in the top 10, but you will find some really good stories like Sidney Crosby still being really, 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 really good. Exactly. And look, I get that that might be boring for some because, you know, depending on your age, this city Crosby's been really, really, really good. Maybe your whole life, or even if you're 30 for more than half your life, because this is his 18th NHL season. Yeah. I think what's interesting here for me, Julian, he's the 31st oldest skater in the league. So he is, um, that doesn't include goaltenders and there's a few goaltenders older than him, but you know, he's approximately the 40th oldest player in the league in a league of 800 people. You start doing the math. Like he's, he he's uh, trending towards extinction uh, for lack of a better term. Um, and, and, you know, it's not to say one of a few good years, but the fact that he's right there back at the top of the, the scoring race early on, you look at, you know, the, the amount of shots he's generating uh, the points per 60, this is like, everything is still in such a strong position for him. And he had a great year last year. I mean, I just, I, I think it's a great story that Sidney Crosby has found a way 
again, he's a little older, I think, than most people that follow the game would think. Um, and, and he's doing something at an age you wouldn't expect him to do uh, if, if you were just looking at numbers and just considering aging curves and all those things. And so, you know, to me, it's a great story that, that there's no sign of drop off here. And, you know, if he stays healthy this year, and people probably aren't paying attention to this, he'll probably climb to 15th on the NHL's all-time points list. And if he has another healthy year next year, you know, he he's top 10 is not that far off for him. And so we are truly in the golden years of his career. Uh, and so much like we've talked maybe about Alex Ovechkin's goal scoring at times and how he does that at an age you wouldn't expect. I think the fact that Crosby's so productive, so effective. And look, the Penguins are off to a good start too. And that's not a coincidence. Uh, by the way, Sidney Crosby's next assist will be the 900th of his career. And he's over 500 goals. So correct. Right, you're getting to, I mean, we already know he's a special player, but now it's sort of like how, how high will he climb, right? How special will he be? That that's that's kind of the question. And and how long will he go? You know, I, I don't have that answer, but um, you know, I think it's it's one of those nice stories that's probably flown under the radar nationally. I saw that he got some nice shout outs when he was three year town in Calgary there last week. Nazem Kadri had some some kind words about him, but um, you know, probably a little bit of we we focus on the new toys and forget that some of the old boys are still uh, still pretty good too. Still looking really great at 35 years old. Also, 80 points away from 1,500 career points in his career. Sidney Crosby, I mean, he's been a special player as long as I've been following the league. And it's not, I don't want to say it's a, it's a surprise. It's not a surprise that he's still playing well at his age. But, like, we should, you bring up a really good point. We should really kind of just savor in the fact that he's still good. We don't know how long he has. And the fact that he's still able to play at a high level, like, that's special. Like to be able to, to see him in your building, like take advantage of that and and just savor it. Like it's it's really special. I, I, that has to be said about Sidney Crosby. The next storyline I want to get to is uh, Cole Caulfield and how well he's been playing under Martin St. Louis in Montreal. That seems like it's going really well. Yeah, and I, I'm actually hard pressed to think of one coaching change that have affected one player so dramatically and markedly than what we've seen with Cole Caulfield and Martin St. Louis. I mean, look, there's a lot expected of Cole Caulfield as is in his full rookie season last year. Um, you know, after he played, of course, in the playoffs for Montreal uh, the year prior, and you know, it didn't go very well for half a year. That it was a disaster, frankly. And you know, I'm not laying it all at his previous coach's feet, but it's hard to ignore the fact that when Martin St. Louis was hired in early February. To this moment right now, Cole Caulfield is actually third in the entire NHL in five-on-five goals. And, you know, he couldn't put a puck in the lake prior, prior to Martin St. Louis being the, the, the coach of the Montreal Canadiens. And so I think this is a great story because obviously a player with, uh, you know, pretty big hype around him was, was, has always been a goal scorer, you know, scored a ton before he got to the NHL. And, you know, ever since Martin St. Louis has been behind the bench, he's been doing exactly that. And, and, you know, what's interesting about him is so many of those goals do come at even strength. Uh, for Caulfield, all, all five that he scored in seven games this season ha- have been that way. And, and so many in the in the back half of last year. And so, you know, you're talking about a young player. You're talking about an organization looking for signs of hope. Uh, I, I think the fact that uh, you've got a, the, the Cole Caulfield whisperer behind the Canadians bench is, is a nice story that's developed in Montreal. Or as some players of the Montreal Canadians would refer to him as Cole Caulfield's dad. Exactly. Do you see that video? Uh, TSN had all those different uh, videos of each Canadian team 
And I think they were just asking them just like little like questions about like which players most likely to do this. And I think they like that those types of videos, that's where we got like guys like Brendan Gallagher saying like Marte St. Louis, like Cole Caulfield's dad or something like that. Like it's 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 pretty. But Marte St. Louis, to his credit, like he's seen how special Cole Caulfield was from even before he was head coach of the Montreal Canadiens. Like the dynamic between those two, like it's it's crazy. Right. I mean, similar stature. I think they think the game in a similar way. And, and, you know, confidence is so much of success, probably in all areas of your life. But, you know, for athletes, it's it's so big that you, know, you ever talk to an athlete that's been through a long slump and comes out of it. They'll talk about how their confidence was lacking. They're questioning themselves. I'm sure Cole Caulfield was in that situation last year. And so to have someone who believes in him, that's supporting him, that's maybe been able to give him specific pointers in his game, you know, that's it's it's. A good story because, you know, I don't think we want to see anyone struggle, but especially a young player. And that that had to be a pretty darn hard year last year. And you wonder, OK, so he has a great second half when it kind of doesn't matter with the new coach. How's it going to how's that going to carry over? And the fact that he's had such a great start to this season, you know, I think is, is nothing but a positive. Let's move on to the third storyline here. Buffalo and Detroit appear to be advancing beyond their own rebuilds. Yeah. And, and look, those are two great hockey cities, you know. And I've been around long enough to have been in, in both cities when the teams were very competitive and you go into the, the buildings, you know, it used to be Joe Louis Arena, since become Little Caesars Arena, the new rink they opened in Detroit. Uh, the Buffalo rinks had 7,000 names. Key Bank Center, I think, is the most recent one. But anyway, nothing sucks the life out of a great hockey city like perpetual losing. And the life had been sucked out of those two places. And I think there's real signs now that, you know, I'm not sure how far each team can climb this year. Like, the playoffs to me still look like a lofty goal. You know, Buffalo is probably a little bit ahead if, if we're sort of looking at those two teams specifically. But I think both teams are showing signs that they're not, they don't suck by any stretch. You know what I mean? Like it's not just going to be another year of the exact same thing. And so there's, there should be interest growing back. And I, and I think there'll be new life in those hockey cities. And I, I think that's, that's so positive. We've talked about the Sabres a little bit, I know in previous podcasts, but just, the run they had through Western Canada, Rasmus Dahlin's emergence, the fact they finished last year strong. You know, I have some questions, big picture maybe, but the goaltending. But, you know, so far it's it's been good. Craig Anderson's been excellent. He's 41. And obviously Eric Comrie brought in to, to play net there. You know, what, what I see in Detroit is a team that finally has some secondary scoring. Um, you know, it's not that they lack, you know, Dylan Larkin and Tyler Bertuzzi, pretty good offensive players, but there just was not a lot beyond them. I think a lot was being asked, but... You know, you sign David Perron, who's, you know, just seems like he scores 30 plus every year. He's already got four goals. You know, Dominic Kubalik's been been a nice addition for them, has put up some points. You know, Andrew Kopp centering their second line now. So I think Detroit is just rounding out the forward group and, and you know, have some promising young players themselves. And so, you know, th those are two good stories. I think it's good for the NHL big picture uh, to have those being thriving hockey markets and, and, you know, it's probably a little soon to say they're back there yet because, you know, I haven't seen what the attendance is like. Buffalo hasn't played many home games yet, but I have to believe that some excitement's coming back into those fan bases and rightfully so because you like the rebuild is exciting because you're, you're, you're hoping to, you know, get top prospects, but, you know, eventually you got to sell winning. And I think those teams are going to start selling winning here very soon. All right. What about uh, the goalies? You have them as their own storyline. Well, I mean, look, there's so much variance in performance from year to year. Uh, and and it's so early, so so this some of these some of these takes might age poorly, but you know I, I'm just looking to start the year, and you have you know Carter Hart with a tremendous save percentage, 
uh, early in the year. Linus Allmark in, in Boston has had an awesome start. Elias Samsonov with the Leafs um, was four and one out of the gates and, and has had a good, good run here. You know, even Anderson, who I mentioned, uh, you know, he's two and oh, and his starts for Buffalo, I think he stopped 64, 66 shots or something like that. And, and, you know, those are all sort of bounce backs or in the case of Anderson, just maybe a surprise performance that, that, you know, he's still being able to perform at that level. Um, given his age, he's actually the oldest player in the league, uh, full stop at this point. And, you know, I think that, that those are, are nice stories. You know, someone like Carter Hart has had so many expectations. The last few seasons have been really difficult uh, for him. I'm sure for anyone that's been on the Flyers, you know, he hasn't maybe taken that step. Maybe we're starting to see that. You know, Samsonov came to Toronto for, you know, turned down longer term offers from other teams, signed a one-year deal with the Leafs in hopes of kind of reviving his career. And, and I think you're seeing early signs that that's the case. You know, Allmark had signed a, a big five-year free agent contract two summers ago and, and last year didn't go great. It, you know, it wasn't awful, awful, but you know, this is maybe more what the, the Bruins were hoping they were going to get. And, you know, Boston's had such a strong start to the year. And so, you know, I think that there's, there's a few bounce back performers among that group. I could have included Frederick Anderson as well in Carolina, uh, you know, who after entering ending last season injured has started off with a bunch of wins for, for the hurricanes and his start. So, you know, I, I think that there's been some, some nice goaltender storylines, uh, it's not all, you know, the other end of the the, the spectrum because there's a few goalies like Mark Andre Fleury, for example, who've who've had difficult uh, beginnings of this season. So let's go from the goalies to a forward. Uh, Shane Pinto for the Ottawa Senators is uh, off to a really great start. Yeah, and I'm calling him a, another beacon of hope in Ottawa, right? I mean, we we talked so much this summer about the free agent signings and the trade for Alex Debrinket and and you know some of the the, the extensions the Senators signed with their players that I think were you know, reju- rejuvenated that marketplace. Well, Shane Pinto was, was one of those young prospects and, you know, missed most of last season after a shoulder surgery. And, and so was maybe a little under the radar when it came to talking about what might be for the Sens. And, and look, some of this is, is a, a nice shooting percentage that will be unsustainable, but he's, he's got five goals through six games uh, for the senators. And I think that's particularly important in light of the news Wednesday, unfortunately that Josh Norris, uh, could miss potentially the rest of the season, but certainly we're talking a multiple month injury of his own uh, with a shoulder issue that, that he has. And so, you know, someone like Pinto being there to, to give it again, a sort of a secondary scoring option and still a very young player. You know, I think it's another reason for hope in Ottawa. And look, they, they're wrapping up, I believe on Thursday night, a five game homestand. They've won the first four games of the homestand. We've seen fans come back to the building. They had a sellout in, in their home opener. I just think that this team is finally worth the price of admission again, that they've created some own buzz in their marketplace. And, you know, Pinto is just another, I think, player to be excited about if you're a Sens fan and you're looking for, you know, how do they, how do they crawl out of the abyss? Well, this is, this is how you do it. You, you have players that are, you know, doing things they haven't in the past, in this case, just because he's, he's a young guy entering the league. But I think there's reason to be excited about him and maybe could become a dark horse uh, Calder Trophy favorite if, if he can continue some sort of productive start. We're not expecting him to score every night, but uh, you know what a nice start to his his season, especially after missing so much time last year. Let's move on to Chicago. Their first six games of the year, they have a 4-2-0 record. That's not the record I was expecting for Chicago, considering we all thought they'd be trying to lead the way in the Connor Bedard sweepstakes. Yeah, we should have had a You Can Bet That segment about like how many games does Chicago have to play before they get to four wins? Because we might have said like 10 or 12 games. Uh, given what was expected of them. And the fact they got there in six, 
shows you that at least for a small period here, they're defying expectations. I mean, look, they signed NHL players like like they signed Max Domi, um, you know, presumably for the chance to flip them at some point. We'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, you know, I, I don't think that the plan that that management has in place has changed any. I do think that they intend to get worse before get better and sell off more parts as they've done pretty uh, aggressively over the last 12 months or so. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is if you you saw that the, the clip with Luke Richardson, the new head coach of the team, and Kyle Davidson were available to the media a day or two before training camp. And Luke was outright. He's like, look, I want to make Kyle Davidson's job hard. We're going to try to win as much as we can. And so far, he's been true to his word. And and so, you know, this is one if I if I had to sort of put on my speculating guest glasses, I, I don't think it's going to continue. I don't, I don't see Chicago being a team that stays in a playoff picture or, or truly defies expectations but the fact they've done so for two weeks is interesting and and you know it's sort of like how long can they keep this going does management you know i mean what how does this play out it'd be it'd be fascinating if they keep winning put it that way because i don't think other than the head coach and and i'm sure the players that have to play the games there were not many people around that organization closely and those of us more broadly in, in the hockey world that expect them to win too much this year Let's go over to Boston. I have to admit, I thought the injuries were going to kill them. They're doing really well without Bruce Cassidy. But you know who's also doing really well? Bruce Cassidy with the Vegas Golden Knights. Yeah, isn't this interesting? I mean, basically two of the hottest teams to start the year is the team that Bruce Cassidy left and the one he took over, the the, the Bruins and the Golden Knights. Uh, and so, I mean, by far, when I look back, we've had so many coaching changes in the last year, but the one that shocked me the most and still – I can't fully wrap my head around is the Bruins firing Bruce Cassidy. You know, his teams had uh, like a 670 point percentage or something like that in his time there that they made the playoffs all six years he was there, but they decided it was time for a fresh voice in Jim Montgomery. And lo and behold, even with their injuries, even with that coaching change, you know, the Bruins have started, you know, like wildfire this season. And it looks like Brad Marchand could return as soon as Thursday, but certainly is very close to return, even if it doesn't come Thursday after his, his hip surgeries. Uh, that he had over over the summertime, and so that's that's a great story in and of itself because you know it, it, there's a little last dancey vibe to the Bruins. I think you know David Krejci's had a great start in in coming back after a year in, in playing in Czechia, his home his home country. Um, you know Patrice Bergeron only is on a one year deal. I mean I don't know how long this core is going to be there. You can only really count on it being this season, and so the fact that they're off to a good start, I think, is encouraging. And then you know that Bruce Cassidy is turn things around in Vegas, you know, after their first missed uh, playoffs ever last year, you know, a year where a lot went against them with just crazy injury problems and, and, and what have you, the, the cap situation, um, you know, but he's, he's had a strong start there. And so, you know, that doesn't maybe surprise me as much as the Bruins start just because of the combination of injuries and the change behind the bench. You know, to me, I, I thought Vegas, I, I viewed that kind of as a bit of a one-off. And so I thought it was a good situation for him to step into, but, Anyway, this is one of those this is one of those breakups where on both sides uh, each each is thriving. So you know it's it's a it's a good news story. Yeah, that's good. Those types of breakups are allowed to happen. Nazem Kadri in Calgary. I'm a little bit more familiar with this one than some of the other storylines. Uh, off to an amazing start in Calgary. Points in all six games that he's played so far with his new team. Few highlight real goals. Uh, you know, end enders already for him. I think what's interesting here is first of all. It's a short summer, right? He ends, you know, he plays in the Stanley Cup final injured, uh, but he, he wouldn't shouldn't have played those games or wouldn't have played those games if they were his regular season, given what he was dealing with. And then he's got the long wait 
in free agency, which must have been stressful. He's got all the Stanley Cup parties and planning his own day with the Cup. He goes to Europe for a trip with his family. I mean, it was not the ideal summer of preparation, and that's not a, a knock at Kadri. It's just, you know, the circumstances in his life didn't set up well maybe to have the best carryover. And, you know, there's some burden probably, I would assume, to, you know, signing the kind of deal he did. You want to do well, uh, but maybe you didn't get as much training time as you wanted or as much time on the ice. Well, scratch all those narratives or thoughts or or possibilities with the way he started. And, and you know, we're going to measure, and Julian, especially you on the ground covering this team closely, you're going to measure the, you know, the decision to sign him to that kind of money at his age. I mean, he's entering an age 32 season. He turned 32 at the start of October when he gets that $49 million contract. Uh, it's going to take years before we know if that was a good decision, most likely. But the fact that the first few weeks have gone so well, I think that that's, that's a really positive story because I've seen it lots of times where the, the new free agent signing, you know, comes in with different expectations, making different money and it doesn't work initially. It's sometimes it's hard to come back from a, a bad start. Um, you know, there's extremes like David Clarkson in Toronto, who you know, signed a big contract and got a 10 game suspension in the preseason and just never got going. And then unfortunately came into injury trouble. And so he couldn't work his way out of that. But you know, there's other circumstances where if you, it's almost just like a bad start to the, in the new city it can can wear on a player and so i think the fact that it's gone so well for Kadri is a, a huge uh bonus a great bit of news for the flames and you know we'll, we'll see how it goes but i mean this guy's defined the age curve curve himself he's a little younger than Sidney crosby certainly didn't ever have the peak anywhere near as high as Sidney crosby but coming off a hugely productive year in colorado it looks like he's poised to do so again in calgary looks like i saw this stat I think Nazem Kadri has had a six-game point streak for every team that he's played for. So in Toronto and in Colorado, obviously. But uh, something about those six-game point streaks for Nazem Kadri, and also playing on Saturday nights, uh, scored some goals on some Saturdays to start off the year. Let's go to uh, the next storyline here. We love Big Val on this side. The choo-choo train is still roaring in Colorado. Yeah, and, and look, it, this is it's sort of a similar that the reason I grouped them together with Kadri, it, it's 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 sort of a similar story, right? The last time I saw Big Val, he was literally being wheeled out of Emily Arena on like a, a baggage cart. Uh, he had a boot on his right foot because he finished the Stanley Cup final with a broken right foot. Uh, Jeez. So you know, I'm I'm willing to wager it was not the most ideal summer for him. It was nice for him. He signed a big eight year contract extension with the Avs, and so he was able to stay there. Um, but you know, again, not an ideal summer of, of preparing for an NHL season. And here he is scoring a goal game out of the gate for the avalanche. And I think that's important for a couple of reasons. I mean, they lost, uh, Kadri, Andre Burakovsky in free agency. Uh, you know, they lost Gabriel Landeskog, their, their captain to, for three months after a knee surgery here recently. And so they, they needed someone to pick up the slack offensively. I, I still think the avalanche are a great team, but you're looking not to have, what what we would call in the media Stanley Cup hangover, but you know I think just objectively it, it's possible there's a bit of a sag to the start of the next year after winning the highs of winning a Stanley Cup and then losing so many key pieces. And I think the choo choo train has helped uh, keep things on track there. You know the the Avs as we're recording this are four and two out of the gate, and and so they've been able to fend off any sort of uh, you know difficult period. There's no there's no talks about crisis you know in Denver these days and. You know, I think big picture, the team will be okay. But the fact that Nachushkin has started so well, I think bodes well for, for them. Yeah, I think they're tied atop the lead in the central division, uh, the Colorado Avalanche are. Good on them. 
And finally, the uh, final storyline, the NHL's Department of Player Safety being extremely quiet. Well, yeah, and, and this is how I look at this. Like, aren't we better off to be talking about the skill in the game? Aren't we better off to be throwing flowers at, at the players who do amazing things on the ice every night than the violent aspect of it? You know, and, and this has been an evolution over time. And I say this while literally knocking the wood of my desk because I, re- I recognize there's games tonight, there's games tomorrow night, there's games the next night. This could all change quickly. I mean, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a huge shift, but, you know, as we're recording, there's been one suspension in the regular season. Uh, Evgeny Kuznetsov missed one game. You know, probably should have missed more with the the violent the violent nature of his high stick. But you know that that sort of debate aside, um, I, I think that it's it's good news for the league that that we haven't had a series of crazy incidents and we're talking about getting this hit out of the game or that hit out of the game. You know, there's been a lot of years in the past where that's been the case, but I think there's still been able to have most of the focus on on the skill and speed and and scoring aspects and and you know things that I think will will put butts in the seats a little bit more than than you know some of the past where, where hockey's been and so the less we hear from George Peros and his staff the better and I say that respectfully I think they have a tough job but you know I, I don't think you know having the endless debates about long suspensions and this and that is is ultimately what's best for the NHL well that's going to do it for the 10 fun storylines in the NHL according to one Chris Johnston you're right those storylines are actually really great but yeah Let's focus on. They were. I'm not being sarcastic. I know. I was like, and I'm sure I missed a ton, right? Like, I, I was trying to to find maybe some things that literally have escaped people's view because they've been focused. Like, I could have got into Arbor Jacki or, or maybe Wyatt Johnston. You know, some of the the rookies around the league that are doing fun things. Maddie Beniers. You know, guys we've we've actually talked about on our pod a fair bit. Um, but you know, I was just looking for to to see the good because there's a lot of good out there too. Uh, I just also want to throw out an honorable mention to Troy Terry, who seems like he's playing really well in Anaheim. I think he's leading the team in scoring to start. Like, there definitely are some really great storylines that we could have put in here as well. But, uh, no, I think the 10 you have are really great. And, look, things are going to change throughout the season, and we're definitely going to find space to talk about them on the CJ Show. And with that, it's time for Stick Taps. Uh, I I will start uh, with Phil Kessel. We talked about him on a previous edition. He is now the new Iron Man uh, played over uh, well 990 consecutive NHL games. Like like there are players who have not played that many in their careers. The fact that he's able to do that in consecutive games is incredible. Quick trivia question for you, unless you happen to have seen Steve Dangle's tweet from yesterday. Uh, he started the streak on November 3rd, 2009 against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Only three players from that game are still playing in the National Hockey League, aside from Phil Kessel. Any guesses as to who those players are? Well, I saw the tweet, and okay. I actually remember that time really well <laughs> um, because Steven Stamkos and Luke Shen were p- part of the same draft in 2008. The Leafs traded up to get Shen at the fifth pick. Tampa took um, took Stamkos first overall, and then the next year, Victor Hedman was selected by the Tampa Bay Lightning, 2009, if I'm not mistaken. So. Those are the, those are the three guys in that game. Kessel had ten shots on goal and didn't score in his Leafs debut. Um, I mean that was, that was, it's. I wrote actually a story about this this week. Like that was another lifetime ago. Kessel in Toronto, and it was. It's again worth its own sort of soap opera. Like he got treated so he got mistreated so much. Honestly, in my opinion, by 
a lot of my colleagues, I was a young reporter at the time. I was never hard on him particularly. I do remember he, he do you know what he did? He infamously didn't enjoy his media avails, right? But so 2013, the Leafs make the playoffs. Uh, we know how that series ended, but they're playing Boston going into that series. And obviously at that point in time, if you're, what could be a bigger storyline than Kessel having to go back into Boston to play the Bruins. And then day before the Leafs were flying down, it may have been two game days before the series, but anyway, the last media bill in Toronto before the, the Leafs flew down to Boston, Phil Kessel literally ducked out the back door. Like even PR, like it wasn't like PR aided and abetted him. Like he, like he even ducked out on them. And to the point where the Leafs brought out Dave Nonis, who was the general manager, to address the fact that Phil Kessel didn't speak and that he would be speaking every day from that point forward in that series. Like, I have never seen anything like that before or since. But it was, anyway, it was a crazy time. It was a different media world, too. Like, I think everything was more centralized. I mean, had the LFR even started by then? If we're talking about that, I mean, yeah. Because the LFR has been going around for, like, what, 15, 16 years? Okay, but it was still even in its infancy. I'm just saying there wasn't as many that the, the people that had strong voices in media had way more power or or more like they were just heard more because there was just there was fewer options at that point in time. You couldn't self-publish in those days, right? There weren't bl- really blogs or may, maybe a little bit, but the point of the story is Kessel got a rough ride in Toronto. I think he got misblamed for like a lot of other organizational problems. And yeah, so it's it's amazing he's gone from that first game as a Leaf till today and still hasn't missed one in between with a, a couple different stops along the way. Yeah, so Phil Castle, uh, worthy of a stick tap from myself. Siege, uh, who are you uh, giving a stick tap to? Mine is going to Borea Salming, uh, who's obviously in a, in a fight that, unfortunately, you know, you probably can't win. Um, you know, ALS is a terrible disease. It's taken a lot of great people. It's, you know, it's affecting Chris Snow. The assistant general manager in Calgary and, and, you know, him and his wife have been very open about sharing his journey. Uh, and, you know, Boria is having a tough time right now, but, you know, I just want to send some love from, from our little part of the hockey world to him. Saw a nice video of Nicholas Lidstrom actually greeting him this week and uh, giving him a hug. Uh, you know, one thing that started up in, in trying to turn something positive out of a difficult situation is there's a Boria Salming foundation being launched in Sweden to, to raise funds to, to aid with research for ALS, uh, more commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And the, the Swedish Hockey League, the Hockey El Svenskin, which is the second league there, and, and the top pro- professional women's league, they, they basically do their schedule, Julian, and rounds, they're called. They, they, it's like a grouping of games. And round 21, which was the number Borea Salming War in the NHL, it comes in November. The, the league is, is sort of honoring Borea during that time and, and you know, raising funds for this foundation, uh, you know, next month. That's, that's just getting off the ground. And I'm sure the hockey world will will support that. And, you know, I, I would hope the the NHL and the Maple Leafs will, will get behind some of those efforts too. But, you know, while Bory is uh, in in this battle, you know, I just think want to give a moment to to praise him and, and hope that some good can come out of him and his family struggles. I hope so too. And that's very well said. And that's a good way to end our show on this great Thursday. We'll be back on Monday with a brand new episode. You can get your questions in for Ask CJ if you want to get them in now off Twitter or on Discord. And uh, we'll be back on Monday with a new episode of the CJ Show for CJ. Uh, Oh, you want to say something? Halloween Monday. Uh, Will you be wearing a costume on Halloween Monday? Tune in to find out. For CJ, I'm Julian. So long and happy Halloween. The Chris Johnson Show.
Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada's Sportsbook. Inside the game, twice a week. Follow Chris on Twitter at ReporterChris. And follow Julian McKenzie at JK McKenzie. The Chris Johnston Show.